Hello and welcome again to the wide world of wargaming. As always, I am your host, Alex Gonzalez, and with me tonight is uh, Garrett and John. Uh, today we have a lot that we're going to review. We are going to review the uh, Boys GT that just happened in New York State a couple of weeks ago. We were expecting our good friend James to show up and tell us a little bit about how his event went, especially since he got second place. Unfortunately, he is missing an action tonight. So we do miss him, but you know we do have Garrett here anyways, who was there right by James's side the entire time coaching him along with a brand new army. So we'll take a little bit of a closer look into uh, the boys GT. Uh, we also are going to take a peek and look at the uh, Ogre Ma Tribe and uh, Osirik Bone Reaper FAQ that just finally came out two weeks and, or basically 14 days after, or no, my apologies, 16 days after the release of the books themselves. Uh, but, you know, like always, John, what is on your workbench? Hey, how's it going, Alex? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, what is on my workbench, uh, everybody out there in podcast, podcast land, I, I myself have been again working on my, my fine Primaris Marines as far as my hobby progress goes, but I got in a great game of Age of Sigmar against my buddy Josh this week. He was trying out a uh, free cities list. Oh my gosh, free peoples, whatever you want to call it, uh, cities of Sigmar, man. Oh, nasty stuff. He had her a couple of hurricanums, uh, some cannons, a bunch of gunners, uh, just everything in the entire army had shot shooting in it. Uh, I myself, um, I had not unpacked my army since the SoCal Open, and I've been been so busy at work that uh, I didn't really have a chance to pack anything different. So I just took my SoCal Open list against him. And boy, I thought I was dead. I, I We hit the table. We rolled up a mission. And uh, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, what's yours is mine? No. Um, gosh, I'm going to slip the mission. Sorry, guys. I should have took better notes, but I wasn't planning to talk about this too much. But here we go. Uh, anyways, he was going to shoot the heck out of my army. He had some stuff to shoot. Uh, hitting on twos, wounding on twos, uh, auras of re-rolls, the whole nine yards. I thought for sure my rats were just going to be dying. He starts shooting at some clan rats. He killed like 40 clan rats right off the bat. And then and then he made the mistake of, uh, you know, opening up on the Vermin Lord Warpseer. And, uh, you know, I had to make some saves. At one point, I needed to make eight six-ups. And wouldn't you know, or excuse me, eight five-ups. And wouldn't you know, I rolled six sixes and a five. <laughs> Hell yeah. And that's how my saves went. Um, there's no way around it. Um, he did enough damage that he could have annihilated my army, but my saves went absolutely ridiculous. Um, he, oh, I tell you what, Alex, he was using um, the bridge. And so the whole mechanic of his army, he had like all these guys carefully lined up around uh, where he was going to cast the bridge and then opening turn, you know, he had his wizard way back where I couldn't dispel it, casts the bridge, jumps this entire giant block of shooting guys, including the ones that, uh, you know, when you charge in within three inches, uh, they get to shoot at you and some other oh, nasty yeah. stuff in there. And uh, like I said, so he was there, he, man. And he went, after shooting at my army, he killed, like I said, uh, almost an entire block of clan rats, 30 out of 40 clan rats. Did like four wounds on my um, uh, my Vermin Lord Warpseer. Uh, did uh, like half damage on one of my um, uh, 
uh, uh, excuse me, on one of my, uh, which we call plague furnaces. And then that was it. And then his entire army was sitting about, oh, nine inches away from a big old block of monks. And on the other side of the table, he didn't have very much. He, again, he had some kind of uh, shooty cavalry guys and then another hurricanum. And uh, I was able to run a bunch of rats and just take the objective from him over there. My monks charged in uh, against all of his shooty guys in the bridge. And uh, all of a sudden, my dice went super hot. And uh, it was pretty crazy. I tell you what, I thought for sure my rats were going to get just shot off the board. And instead, two turns later, uh, we called it a good game. And uh, he pretty much only had a few units in the back line. So, um it's a game that we talked it out at the end, and honestly, there's no way I should have won that game. But just by the luck of amazing saves, uh, I was able to save it all. And uh, so that was my entire week, gentlemen. Uh, how about you, Garrett? What have you been up to this week? First, want to comment on that game real quick. I think, I mean, I wasn't there, but hearing about it uh, definitely goes to show that uh, going with those high risk high reward gambits of just throwing all your non melee based units with your dick in the wind just out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere you know if you don't pull it off you lose like it's kind of a risky gambit um maybe bringing in a screening unit or something like that could have heavily benefited him but you know he he went for the, he went all in and it didn't pan out so yeah he did and you know what it was the mission where you have uh the four deployment points in each corner and then you only have two objectives in the center Duality uh, of death. Duality of death. See, that's the one. I knew it wasn't what's yours is mine. So he did have to jump something forward that first turn to grab the objective. But it's exactly what you said, Gert. In fact, he and I talked about that. He's like, man, I could have just stood back here and shot. And I go, yeah. And I would have just ran up and sat on the objective. I go, you know, it was your big gambit was to jump up and you either killed me or you didn't. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the other unfortunate thing about that is, uh, placement moves don't actually cause you to score the objective so if you use the bridge to teleport the guys onto the objective that doesn't yep. actually capture the objective and so he wouldn't be able to score that turn so you would just be able to go through and blend through and if you got the double on him annihilate that unit he never would have got a single point so, oh my gosh yeah yeah well yeah, there we go right. there we go uh, we he did we did score him the points so uh, we were technically not he should not have uh, I figured I'd mention that because I from the way you're talking it did seem like he Wait, took the objective. Hold on, we already had this discussion a few episodes ago when we talked about my my events uh, or the event I won the Bellingham Dark Tower GT. My final round was against uh, same mission was against a Stormcast player and we both took a back seat and said, huh. Neither of us should be deep striking any of our heroes. And and uh, we both agreed. We were like, well, then if we're deep striking them, then they're not going to be able to score at all. At least not on the turn they arrive. Well, so, yeah, well, I thought that was the one where the where heroes had could only hold duality of death has the same wording as exactly. the hero based missions. Oh. Although one can take it, the battle line still has to finish a move, charge move, or pile in move that does not include a retreat. Um, interesting exactly oh oh well that is good to know excellent well i'm glad i glad it came up then yeah <laughs> uh anyways so my workbench i've been reorganizing my basement uh, i've had a corner of my basement there's kind of piles of boxes since i've moved in and i decided to uh reorganize everything got a 
couple of new items coming to my house and so just kind of like fit them in and looking to reset up my tables to try to start streaming again um so looking forward to that haven't been doing any model projects per se uh but just moving on a bunch of new stuff and doing a lot of reorganizing around the house so nothing too exciting haven't gotten any games in recently um getting ready for lvo now uh possibly got a tournament this weekend just a one day up in annapolis um and gonna try to get some training games in with james this week uh and we're all out here a bunch of us are just getting geared up Uh, we're gonna do lvo prep missions this saturday and we're gonna look to try to run another tournament in january right before lvo so we're all we're all getting geared up for lvo and uh good stuff excellent excellent but uh, Alex, how about you? What are you doing these days? Um, good. You know, I'm just still finishing doing uh, the hobby work on my Ossiarch Bone Reapers, and uh, you know, uh, kind of making new conversions here and there, getting things wrapped up. I got a second bone. I'm not a. I mean, my my placeholder Soul Mason, I really enjoy, but um, I have a better Soul Mason uh, model than I'm making a second one that's kind of ba- that's converted from a Tomb King. I'm not going to have very many Tomb King conversions, but um. I have one here, uh, and I'm going to uh, still buy another Soul Mason kit in order to put uh, put them on the proper mount, um, just because I really, really like the mount, the look of the the little mini throne, anyways. Um, and then I uh, was originally going to use two Necro Sphinxes uh, or War Sphinxes rather for uh, two Harvesters, but I really like this gorilla style pose I told you about just before recording for the current Harvester model. So I'm going to buy a second Harvester anyways and just go nuts with that instead. Um, and, you know, it is the, 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 the War Sphinx. It can, it can fit on the same base size as a Harvester, but it is almost twice as big and you have to cut the tail and, uh, and, and and it's still egregiously big and barely fits in the base. So as much as we as I wanted to, it was kind of a fool's errand to think that that was going to work out. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's worth trying, though, right? Exactly, exactly. But in the, uh, and unfortunately, in the meantime, trying to figure out what I could do to make a smaller top torso half, um, I ended up cutting up my um, my my uh, endless spell. The one endless spell I didn't make uh, the sh- uh, not the shrieker or the carrion. But the big ghostly bone guy, I already forgot its name, um, the Slash and Bash style endless spell for um, for Bone Reapers. And uh, after thinking about it a little bit more, I was like, okay, well, I cut that model up. What am I going to do in order to have that um, endless spell in case I want it? Because that endless spell is relatively useful. I mean, just like the shrieker where you just plop it down and enemy units within 12 inches are minus one bravery and um at the same time you know friendly osiarc bone reaper units that are basically affected by the minus one bravery are i mean uh, uh, if they attack if osiarc units attack the units that are at minus one bravery um so within 12 of the uh um the shrieker the bone tie shrieker then uh, my units are plus one to hit against the units that are within distance of the shrieker. So same same kind of trappish, trappy endless spell works um, with the um, the the monster endless spell, and uh, that one is just uh, it shows up six inches from the uh, uh, wizard. It's casting value seven. Um, after its uh, uh, after its move, so to speak, um, on a two up, all units within all enemy units. Uh, it says all enemy units, but Osiac Bone Reapers. Um, are unaffected 
Um, it says all enemies uh, within three inches on a two up take D3 mortal wounds. But when you cast the spell, and remember, this is a spell that can't be unbound unless the hero who's who cast it is killed. Um, that it says that uh, when you make when you actually manifest the power, you pick an enemy unit uh, on the table, and it's their prey. And uh, the wound roll for the uh, mortal wounds is still going to be a two up if it's within three inches of the prey, but it's not D3 mortal wounds, it's D6 mortal wounds. So it's a little scary and it's only 50 points. It's a pretty cheap endless spell and it only moves 2D6 inches anyways. So you're really going to want to wait till you're like in the shit, like when you're in combat in order to actually pull it off. But long story short, I cut up that model. I destroyed it in experimenting and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I realized I had these two uh, War Sphinx models or whichever one is the one with the human torso in the front. Not, uh, I know that there's a Necro Sphinx and there's a War Sphinx. Okay, I'm thinking of a Necro Sphinx then. So I didn't know what I was going to do with this Necro Sphinx. And I was also like, well, now I'm out of this, uh, this, this endless spell. However, my research online took a look and I realized that there were a lot of people in uh, who play Tomb Kings uh, who wanted to make a unit that is in Total War Warhammer, the video game, and it also had rules in fantasy, but it's not it, it was never a model that Games Workshop made. You know, back then, especially near the later end of fantasy, Games Workshop, as we all know, or for the most part know, was notorious for m- making rules for models that didn't have, or units that didn't have models. And sometimes it wasn't just units that weren't going to get loved for a while or a new model for a while. Sometimes it was rules for a unit that they never had any intention of even building or creating in the first place. And one of those was the uh, hi, uh, the Hero Titan or the Hyro Titan, however you want to pronounce that. And uh, there was a company, looks like it's it's uh, Rothend or Rothend Studios, and they make a upgrade kit where you, it's basically just legs and a loincloth, legs and hips and a loincloth, and you can attach it to the bottom half of the Necro Sphinx's torso, and, you, and, and it fits perfectly, and it makes it... Uh, you don't have to go through the guesswork of crank, trying to like convert or sculpt crazy legs. It just you plop it on and boom! Now your uh, top half is a normal giant instead, like a colossus thing. So I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make lemon lemonade out of lemons. So I'm going to make my uh, endless spell uh, as like a ghostly apparition of a tomb king. Ooh, that sounds pretty cool. That was a very long-winded explanation, but <laughs> that okay. is what's we, going we on with me. We followed with you, Alex. We followed with you. It's all good. Perfect, perfect. Um, so that's what's on my workbench, essentially. Uh, Excellent. Really just hey, uh, hey, Alex. Be- before we move on here, I, uh, I gotta, I gotta ask Garrett real quick. Hey, Garrett. Uh, a couple podcasts ago, uh, you had asked me to send you some of the uh, Carolina Reaper peppers, and uh, I sent those off earlier in the week. Did those uh, finally get over to your house? Yeah, I checked the mail this morning while walking my dog, saw a little package uh, from you, opened it up, got five little peppers. Haven't done anything with them yet, but uh, excited to make some like steak sandwiches with a whole Mm. pepper inside, maybe just eat a whole one raw. Who knows? 
Excellent. But, well, uh, I certainly hope that, that you'll use at least one of them to make some of your famous chili. Other than that, uh, I am uh, also uh, anxious to hear about what you uh, come up with for those bad boys. I'm a, I'm a little hesitant to use my chili because I feel like uh, I'm afraid that the peppers will be overwhelmed with like the other seasonings mm. in there, the like meat and all that stuff. Like uh, I know sometimes I've put some other peppers in there and I haven't really tasted them, and so I'm hesitant to waste one of your peppers on something that'll then just like have no effect. Oh, so. interesting. okay. Interesting. Excellent. Well, then I definitely, I wait with a uh, bated breath as it were. Awesome. Yeah. Well, real quick, uh, I was rudely interrupted, but one other thing that was on my workbench was, uh, the fact that I played 40 K for once. I actually, uh, got seventh, uh, seventh place at a, at a GT this weekend, the, uh, Stumptown stomp. Uh, with chaos Knights, I don't, I don't so. know why you're asking if you got seventh. You were the one who did it. Did you get seventh? Yeah. I mean, uh, who knows <laughs> at this point? Who knows? I played so many Space Marine armies. It was just a, it was a wild, wild ride. Um, but uh, you know, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Du Bois uh, GT. Uh, Vince, this is your cue. Uh, Vince, I know you like these. This is your cue to uh, to stop it right now. Anyone I'm curious about Vince's uh, latest response to John's sweet, sweet words of love. Yeah, and there was nothing. There's no reaction. Yeah, no reaction. I thought he said, "I love it," and maybe he, maybe he didn't mean it. Maybe he used it universally as "I love it." Uh, it's a good idea, um, and I understand that it was a very neutral uh, comment and very kind of all-encompassing. But I think he was really just directing that at John. I think he. <laughs> He really enjoyed that attention. I mean, I would, nice. for the record, but sure. You know, yeah. I, I can't always spout that out. By the way, uh, sorry, Alex, for uh, rudely no, talking no. over the top. No. Of you. I thought you were done. No, no, no. It's all good. Don't worry about it. And with the uh, the boys' GT, it is a major AOS event. It is a really big event in New York State, uh, real upstate, almost Canadian border. It looked like, um, and. Again, uh, Garrett, you were able to show up. You were able to help uh, James a lot with his list. And uh, tell us a little bit about the pregame notion, some of the uh, you know things, the conversations you guys had, the uh, war game workshop, so to speak. How did things go right before the event? Talk to us a little bit about your preparation. Well, we had a nice uh, seven to eight hour drive, I guess, with the horrible four o'clock DC traffic. It ended up being about eight to nine hour drive. Um, up from DC to how far is that though? How far is that? Oh, I'd have to look, but it was, uh, we went from DC to about like maybe 50 miles South of Toronto. Um, I think it was 350 miles or so. Okay. Maybe 400 miles. I, I, sorry for the ignorance. I honestly have no idea about the uh, geography out in that part of the world. So I, uh, honestly, at this point, I don't either. It's just I, it feels like everything is about a ten hours drive away. Like Nashville, <laughs> ten hours. Chicago, ten hours. Rochester, New York, ten hours. Boston, Fair. ten hours. Anywhere you like, I can hit so many interesting places in a ten hours drive from DC. So, um, but yes, moving on. Uh, we we definitely had a couple of conversations. The lists were publicized before the event, and we had a couple of key targets that we knew we wanted to look at, particularly uh, Roger Barker's list with the double rogue idol. Um, and we, I mean, I don't even think we discussed the Slanesh lists because 
from our practice games and our theory hammering, Slanesh just did not stand a chance against James's list. Um, and there was, I think, I forget the other lists that we were looking into, but we kind of just were really focusing on uh, ha- target priority in his list because as a shooting focused list, um, target priority is very key. And then, now, now, what all did he have as his list? Yeah, okay, so James's list was a Celestial Huracanum with Battle Mage on it, a uh, Dark Elf Sorceress, or Darkling Sorceress, whatever she's called now, and uh, a Carriage and Overlord Aether Chemist, then a unit of 20 Blackguard, a unit of 30 Arcanaut Company, and a unit of 30 Eternal Guard, and then two units of three scourge runner chariots with and then he took bailwind and cogs and bought an extra command point he was 50 points down on top of that okay so uh my list was a standard sylvaneth list i was bringing i discussed it earlier before i went to the boys with the branch wraith uh arc revenant drycha tree lord ancient three units of five spites and then two units of three bow hunters and a unit of six sword hunters with the Bailwind and Spice Worm Hive. So we my my types of uh we focused on my army on how to honestly beat cities. Uh trying to f- look into that, which was really interesting because James's first opponent was actually at one of the other three Sylvaneth lists that were there. So a lot of our discussions, I think it, he he kind of got to see firsthand how a Sylvaneth list interacts with his list. Um, but yeah, other than that, it was just kind of like his, in the main focus on his army is focusing on target priority of what things need to go down first and, um, how to go for the, go to the mission from there. Cause the one thing is the missions were not given ahead of time. So we didn't know of any of the 18 missions that we'd be approaching. And then also, uh, James still needed to paint his army. Uh, he had almost nothing painted as of the, so we left Friday evening or and uh as thursday as of thursday afternoon he had 30 models painted oh my gosh so, so in 36 hours from when he left my house at two o'clock to uh 3 a.m saturday morning we finished painting his entire army and uh he got just as good of a paint score as my army <laughs> uh james uh, is a phenomenal I... speed painter he can with very little time get a really tight good look uh, he's very clean. He's very quick, and he has years and years of skill uh, to bring uh, forth. So uh, he had no qualms, but he was basing his models in the back of my car while we were driving. Uh, he did a little bit of base coats in the back of the car, and as soon as we got to the hotel room, we frantically painted the rest of his Eternal Guard. So because I picked him up on Friday, and he had spent Friday morning to Friday afternoon, when I picked him up painting the rest of his army so he had 30 eternal guard left to paint by the time we got up to uh rochester that is impressive so yeah uh there's a lot of people who are very they're like he painted that in 36 hours i was like yeah he they're like jesus like i'm so jealous (laughs) a lot of people who thought they were great speed painters but it's just like no way wow i am highly impressed wow Okay. So that was the uh, that was our initial thoughts going into the event. Now tell us a little bit about how the event went. You know, I know he's got a brand new army. He hasn't tested it at all, right? 
Uh, uh, yeah, I think we, we got basically two practice games in, one versus me and one versus my brother, and we played one turn each uh just to oh, help with deployment and uh help him set up with his screening and that was it that's the only practice he had with the army so it's safe to say that he's coming in very blind basically yeah uh, i mean a lot of theory hammer went into building this list ahead of time basically the idea behind it is abuse the crap out of oppressive amounts of shooting um the sorceress was the general with uh hawk-eyed command trait which is a 12 inch bubble plus one to wound on shooting attacks and then the celestial huracanum giving plus one to hit to all all of the models within 10 inches he can get those uh sky hooks down to twos and twos so 24 inch range twos and twos ren two d3 damage basically can just punch through anything um so definitely uh was that and it definitely performed as as you see he went five and zero and got second place, um, but uh, yeah. So uh, now, when we now, got, did you guys have two hidden agendas each round? We did have two hidden agendas each round. Um, I did not. I don't know what he picked each round, uh, but going into game five, he did purposely pick the harder ones. On I know his game one, he picked. Uh, the one where you have to hold four corners and your opponent doesn't and secret mission to have a guy jump off the board. So he went with two very difficult ones for his army to begin with so that by the time he rolled around to game five, he had just super easy ones to just tick off and call it a call game. Mm, nice. Ooh, very smart idea. Yeah. So uh, when we rolled up to the event, uh, the five missions were finally announced with the realm of battle features which had some very interesting twists. Day one was all in Realm of Metal. Day two was all in Realm of Life, so Chamon and Gairin. And mission-wise, there were no hero-based missions. So no duality of death, no three places of power, no places of arcane power, which ended up being a huge boon to James. We realized because his army only has three heroes, and two of them are incredibly fragile and none of the, and not very fast. So as oh, an army boy. that likes to turtle and shoot you, um, it actually performs. We never practiced it on those hero-based missions, which really could have messed him up. So I think he lucked out a ton not getting any of those. The second interesting thing was on the Realmscape features. Game one of day two, round four, we pulled the, the Realm of Lifescape feature that if you don't have the fly keyword, you cannot run. Oh, with, wow. Yeah, so it ended up being a big deal for like Daughters of Cain armies um, and his army, which is with all those stunty dwarves, usually slow, but with a run and shoot command trait, he can just easily just run across and hit you from anywhere. He was a little kind of, you know, worried about going into that and not being able to run and shoot. So interesting, interesting start to the tournament going, everyone being, the, the whole hall was all like, Game one, day two, no running for anybody unless you got fly. And so that, that was the big interesting thing that the tournament was a buzz about to start with. Wow. That is uh, going into hard mode for everyone. You know, mutually assured uh, fuckery, right? Like, ev- like, man, my army must be fucked, but like that other guy's army is also fucked. And those other 16 players there in the corner are also hosed. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. My army would be hosed by that. Yeah, Skaven, the Skaven player, uh, Matt Obringer, which was James' round five opponent, my round one opponent, fantastic Skaven player. Uh, he was just like 
if I go up against the wrong army, that's going to screw me. Um, and then uh, Anthony Lawrence thought as a cane player was like, God, I really hope I don't play James round four. Because if a daughter's game player can't run against a shooting force, they're just dead in the water. Oh, yeah. Wow. That would be ugly. Yes. Against yeah. a shooting army. Oof. I was thinking in terms of playing against something like Night Haunt that still had fly and could move around. But no, actually being against a shooting army and not being able to get there quicker would be uh, the worst situation. Yeah. It's funny. We played that realm. Wait, that was only one mission, right? Or was that the, pardon me, was that the realm scheme for the entire day two? It was just, it was uh, round four, so game one of day two, which is oh, okay. it's an interesting one to have it because round four is when you're three and zero going into a five round event three and zero. So you just got to win your next two games. So you got a lot of the top talent playing against each other on the top tables during a mission where no, where almost most of the people can't run. Exactly. Okay, because I, uh, I I played that realmscape. Um, round three of that Wagapalooza event and it was fantastic because I fought against triple keepers and they were like well I can't run and I'm like great you're still going first (laughs) (laughs) great you're over you're over 40 uh 28 inches away from me and you can't run in charge (laughs) like oh it felt good to feel protected at least for a turn (laughs) (laughs) oh boy wow that's great um, how did he do? Tell us a little bit more about it. So his first round was against, as I said earlier, a Sylvaneth player, which ended up being my round two opponent, hilariously. Um, really cool guy. Uh, Nick Parrott, I believe was his name. Uh, he brought... A, uh, he, he was clearly a very uh, old Sylvaneth player. As I was, I talked to him a bunch right after James's game and then during my game. Uh, he was used to a lot of the old Sylvaneth rules because um, he, he did say he hasn't played around with a new book very much. Um, so there was a couple of things that he kind of forgot about that didn't work that way anymore. Um, but he's bringing a double Durthu... Uh, not harvest boon i think is the one that allows you to uh after attacking retreat your general command trait um so he had a dearthu with that and then a unit of six scythe hunters unit of three sword hunters and then a bunch of dryads and two branch uh, wraiths so he ended up so uh nick ended up getting the wooden spoon so nick's first round opponent and he was james's hardest game because Sylvaneth, uh, Wake and Wildwoods, you can't see through them and unless you have fly. And James has nothing with fly. And so what he did is he just deep strike his sword scythe hunters in the wood, an inch inside the wood. He's like, you can't see me. And so James has to come out and grab him. And he just – then he just comes out of the wood running and just dives right into James's lines. One of the key things about James's army is that turn one, his whole army is plus one save. And so if you're able to wait out a turn, not being able to be shot at, he loses that plus one save. And so all of your damage is now at full potential. So you just go in and murder the screen with a Scythe Hunter. I think he threw like a Durthu and the six Scythe Hunters and killed almost the entire Eternal Guard line, which is normally a very tough screen that James has. Um, I guess I'll wind back a bit and talk about how James builds up his army. So what he does, he puts the 30 eternal guard in a little bubble around the Celestial Herconum and the 
uh, sorceress, chemist, and K- uh, Arcanaut company. And then he has the black guard sitting behind for counter charge. So the eternal guard of a four up save. And then as long as they don't move in the previous movement phase, in, in, the, in the turn that you're currently in, which in your opponent's turn means as long as they don't pile in, they get plus one to save, plus one to hit, plus one to wound. So they're at two inch reach, twos and threes with two attacks each, and then a three up save. And on turn one, a two up save. So he has this oh really tough screen sitting right in front of his army, deploys his uh, Arcanaut company just enough behind, depending on what range weapons you have. So if you have a three inch range weapon, he puts you more than three inches away. You got a two inch range weapon, he puts you more than two inch away. He just makes sure that you'll never be able to touch this carriage and overlord unit. And then so you hit that screen and then he just shoots you. Uh, either the unit in front or the units to the side, whatever priority he needs to get. And then he has the two units of Scourge Runner Chariots, which are just so mathematically efficient. For 150 points, you get three models that have two shots each, threes and threes, rend one, D3 damage, with six as a hit, causing D3 mortal wounds, full stop. But perfect hero snipers. They're incredibly fast. They got like a 12-inch move. But the one silly thing about those guys is, like, everyone saw these uh, when the book came out. They're like, wow, these guys are amazing for their points. They're on freaking bloodthirster bases. They're huge models in units of three. It's a massive footprint. Which ones? The Scourge Runner Chariots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're on bloodthirster-sized bases. And so it's like moving them and maneuvering with them is really weird. Um, But... It just brings a flanking, fast uh, unit that can just snipe heroes and stuff to James's force. So he just kind of has those sit on the side, and the the Arcanaut company are protected by the screen. So I walk over at the after the end of my brutal game versus Matt Obringer, and I just see like everything's dead. I'm like James, what the hell happened? Like, I mean, uh, <laughs> Nick's army is all dead too. But I'm like, you have five Eternal Guard left six uh, carriage and overloads left, a celestial common and a chemist. And I think three chariots. And I was like, where did all your shit go? And apparently Nick just like got a good double turn and just hit the line with two Durthus and the scythe hunters and just started cutting through his army. Um, not being able to shoot into that wildwood punished James severely, apparently. But wow. uh, James was able to uh, outmaneuver and get the win on Scorched Earth uh, was apparently way ahead, way ahead on points by the time it was turn five, and uh, so was able to get a full point win on that one. As always, wow. play the mission. Yep. So that was his round one. My round one was, uh, as I said earlier, versus Matt Obringer. Uh, he brings a very interesting Skaven list. He utilizes their ability to regenerate command points to its full effectiveness. Oh. So he bring, he brings uh, his general as a bell with the master manipulator command tree so you can re-roll the check to see if you get command points back. And then he also brings the ether course brooch. And then he brings Thankwell. And Thankwell's command ability is uh, throughout the turn, you get to use a command ability for free, the uh, three generic command abilities for free, auto run six, uh, reroll tra- uh, charge and um, <laughs> bravery, bravery one. Where this is going. And so he basically, and it says, uh, and the ether course approach doesn't get to be used, but the Skaven 
ability to uh, on Master Clan where you roll five of good command point back, it says anytime you use a command ability, use this on a five of good is back. So he basically spams Thankful's ability three times using the Ether Course Brooch and the Master Manipulator to get the command points back. And then he uses those free command abilities to generate new command points. And so he usually ends up spending between 15 and 30 command points a game. Nice. Um, and he just, and he has all this command point regeneration. So every die, anytime using a reroll once to hit, he gets two rolls to see if he gets a command point back. And if he rolls two fives, he generates an extra. Um, so he's all about generating tons of command points, doing all sorts of weird stuff. And then the, uh, he has a claw lord on a brood horror, which his command ability is pick a unit with holy within 13 inches. They get plus one attack, but it doesn't have the thing where you can't spam it. So he like gets a unit of 20 clan rats and he says, okay, they're at plus seven attacks with death frenzy. Go ahead and kill my clan rats. They're at eight attacks apiece on threes and threes. And he just murders you. That's all awesome. right. All right. So uh, he ended up going all the way to place James on round five of the event so he made he used those abilities and took himself almost to the top i think he was the one of the top level of when it comes to battle points i think he had the most of all the four and one players so he he also did perform quite well um so my game against him we both had eight drops he went first he set up all of his bullshit and i just i couldn't (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't get my casting off. He covered the board so my trees couldn't go in good places. It was Scorched Earth, which is a bad matchup against Skaven for my army. It just, like, it was, I was, like, in it to lose to begin with, like, my army against his army on that mission. And then everything went his way. And it was just, like, all downhill from there. The game was over by turn two. I couldn't roll higher than a two on priority rolls. And so I never got any priority and the game just, it was over. I mean, we played all five rounds, but the game did not last very long. I would say if the game ended on turn two, then like you said, Oh, you can roll nothing but a two up on your priority roll. So you mean you just rolled one, two up. (laughs) The game was over on turn two, but we did play all five rounds. Got it. Got it. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was clearly over. He had burned like one or two of my objectives on turn two. I could never push him off. Half my army was dead. It was just, I just stuck through to the end just for second series. It was messy. What a great guy. Look at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, you had fun, right? Uh, no. Oh, honestly. Uh, I mean, nothing against Matt. It's just, it was an oppressive game that just like, wasn't fun. Nothing going my way. Uh, Matt's a great guy, but it was just, No, it wasn't a fun game, but that's not, I mean, I, I'm fine with it. I don't mind having unfun games personally. I know it's part of the, uh, part of playing the competitive play. Yeah, that's true. Like sometimes just the dice are stacked against you and you're just like, well, shit, this happens. You just, you just got to push through. Yeah. Well, you know, it builds character, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Roll dice builds character. (laughs) Perfect. There's 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 a, a meta statement somewhere in there. <laughs> it's a D and D t-shirt quote, actually. Ah, of course it is. Yes. Perfect. Well, so that was just know. round one. Tell us more, Garrett. Keep on. Yeah, keep on. I just I wanted to see if you guys wanted to have any conversation or comments. But so going into round two, my game was against Nick Parrot. Uh, my game was 
similar to my game against Matt, but on the opposite end, my uh, dice decided to be uh, very angry at themselves against Matt, and I rolled like 11s for all of my casting rolls. Uh, I won every priority roll possible, and uh, I just annihilated him. He ended up going first, failed to cast a tree, and so was pinned in his deployment zone on Battle for the Pass. I got both my trees off. My whole army just charged forward, took the two middle objectives. I double turned him, took his objective, and I pinned and I covered every single Awakened Wildwood on the board. So half his army, which was in Deep Strike, had to Deep Strike on his Awakened Wildwood in his back. And I just pinned him in his flame zone, and he just couldn't catch up all game. Hey, so how um, does that work when you have Sylvaneth on Sylvaneth? Do you guys, do each of your woods stay sort of independent? Do you, like jump into his woods or something interesting you, or? you can jump into his woods i had to make sure to block off my own woods to make sure he didn't deep strike using mine because you just have to deep strike within six inches of a an awakened wildwood there is no ownership of the wild woods ah interesting so how do you guys do that do you guys do like shirts versus skins like you're the one who's running the uh the uh, Awakened Wildwoods, but the old Wildwood models, and I'm the one using the new ones. Well, the, as I was saying to John, um, Wildwoods are not owned by anybody, so I could use his no, that I he know, brought. I'm just talking about making sure you don't like accidentally pick up like 12 of your buddies' like Wildwoods and not your own. I mean, that, it's useful having like stuff painted to your own scheme. So you know it's yours. Typically, yeah. <laughs> I actually have a uh, surprisingly unique uh, paint scheme uh, that is a white birch tree look in the realm of Shaiish. And so it's quite easy to tell mine apart from other armies. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, that sounds like a really complicated scheme. You must have sat down and painted a lot. Took you all actually, uh, my good friend Matt Barker uh, painted the whole thing for me. So No, I, no, I, knew. I, <laughs> I knew. I was just, I was just making a joke. Yeah, I wanted to just give a good shout out to Matt. He did a fantastic job, and I'm loving his work. So awesome! Good. Wow. But uh, James's second round opponent, I actually don't remember. Oh, he played. That's right. He played Edgar as Slanesh, and I'm still in the middle of my game with Nick, and he walks over and he's just like, "Dude, Slanesh is dead." Like he apparently just the slanesh has no answer to this list because you charge into the screen of one wound models that have a two up save. And he shoots you. Uh, you don't charge into the screen, and he shoots you. Um, and they just they they can't really punch through the screen well, and they just get shot off the board. And he says it was interesting because previously playing against a lot of Slanesh armies, um, his next round opponent was also Slanesh, so he did this back to back, and it was the same thing both ways. Uh, but playing against Slanesh, they Slanesh players have become very cocky in the way they play, where they they know how this game's going to play out. They're going to kill you, generate a bunch of depravity, summon new keepers, and then murder you. Um, and so they come into this game, and then they, he saw immediately, all of a sudden, they're like, wait a minute. Oh, shit. And like he kind of played into their psyche of constantly reminding them about how he's going to shoot them off the table. And so he kind of knocked them off their game, and they were no longer this cocky players that they knew they could just table their opponent. They were like super reserved and like playing KG and having to think about their actions. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I just psyched them out and just totally flipped through them off their game. He played oh, Edgar, I believe Hernandez, I forget Edgar's last name, round two and then he played a uh, chris bergman round three um and yeah so he just tabled some well round two round three versus chris chris didn't get the double turn on turn two and he's like yeah i can see there's nothing i can do well you know uh i don't think it's that slanesh is dead 
I think it's just people have Slanesh's number now. I think when Slanesh first came out, they just had so many abilities that people weren't ready for, like the depravity summoning and the unique way that they summon, or, you know, can bring more models back. And then also, I mean, yeah, the keeper hits like a brick shit house. So I think people just weren't, like, didn't know how to, you know, deal with it. And then, you know, of course, we've all played enough 40K to know when there was that overpowered army, um, even without any sort of other new army to counter it. After a while, everyone you know sort of starts to figure out the ins and the outs and how to how to beat you know said list or said army. So, you know, I think it's a little bit more of just you know where things ended up. Yeah, I have to agree yeah. with that. I, I found that the more I've played against Lanesh, I, I really don't feel uh, overly threatened by them anymore. And uh, you know, a good player wielding Slanesh is still an extreme threat, but that's because they're a good player. But uh, average Joe is, um, you know, it's still an average Joe army. Yeah, unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately for James, the two players willing these Slanesh are experienced Slanesh players that have been playing them since the book has dropped. And but they just had no answer to his list, especially in the mission setup. I guess they had. I see. So mission two was Battle for the Pass, and then mission three was. Uh, focal points. So, okay, okay. Wow. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, once those Slanesh players now play against the uh, the free people, the free cities, there a bit, you know, they're they also will learn the strategies. You know, it's uh, it's that ever back and forth, which again, why it's so important to practice, practice, practice against lots of different people and lots of different lists. Yeah, no, that's definitely something that uh, James and I are noticing. So we've uh, started doing our practice sessions and we're now thinking like we need to start switching gears and rather than practice against each other, we need to have one player be the practicer and the other person be the practicee. And whoever is not playing their army just needs to start proxying all different kinds of armies. Be like, let's look at it like a top slanesh list. See how your army plays in the set. Let's try uh, an, a deepkin list that might be able to beat you. And so we'll have to start practicing against other armies so we can see our, how our armies will perform against all the different types of factions. Oh, that's good. I like that. But uh, yeah, so my game three uh, was actually probably one of the like most interesting uh conclusions i've had in a really long time i played against a cities of sigmar list a non-shooting one he had a unit of 20 crossbows uh but other than that he was playing heldenhammer i think is how it's called and uh or heldenhall hammer hall or something like that and it's uh basically you roll a die per banner and on a six you get a command point but he has Th- uh, three units of three demigriffs with a general and a griffin and he can just r- like charge turn one and then all of them are at plus one to hit and just annihilate things when they charge and so he d- on, did that turn one he moved forward and I, I screened pretty well uh but he was able to go forward and almost like her- kill drycha and oh the, th- the key thing about heldenhammer is if he's in his own territory, he's immune to Battleshock. And if he's in your territory, he can spend a command point to pile in and attack twice. So I had to really prepare for those double pile-ins. And so basically he he pushed onto my territory, pinned me in my zone. 
uh, was clear. I don't have much screens. And so he was able to clear out my screens and just hold me down. And by the end of turn three, before priority, it was, I had four points to his 18 points. Yikes. I double turned him into turn four. And on tur- by the end of the game, I had 18 points to his 20. Oh, okay. So you made a it, great comeback. Yeah, it was this weird game where I had just completely given up. I had no chance of winning. And I was like, let's just keep playing. And I was going to go for the secondaries. And then I was like, let's just try this. You know, if this works, I might something might happen. And I'm like, oh, it worked. Oh, I, I took almost all the objectives. Oh, I just tabled him. Wait a minute. Where did, when did that happen? Like both me and him were looking at each other. We're like, where the hell did that come from? Like I basically had he I had three Kurnoth hunters charge into him, and he killed two of them. So I'm down to one Kurnoth hunter with his great swords. That one Kurnoth hunter, I then rev, uh, attacked a bunch of great swords. I then revived a Kurnoth hunter and killed the rest of the great swords with those one and then two Kurnoth hunters, and I just tore through his lines and just killed everything in two turns. And I was like, so basically I was one double turn away from winning the entire game. It was crazy to think about. Me and him were just like, that was wild. It was a lot of fun and we had a great time. Yeah. And you can, you just can't give up in age of Sigma. I mean, how many games uh, have I had too that where it's just, you know, you, you think you're dead and you take that bad first turn where you're just like, Oh my gosh, the alpha strike really got me. But then you keep playing, you keep playing, and some lucky dice, a bad move on your opponent's part, whatever, and boom, all of a sudden it's an entirely different game. Mm-hmm. Not to mention as long as you keep focusing on the objectives. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was very, it was hard for me on focal points because he stole that middle objective and then pinned me in my zone for so long that it was, he just jumped ahead. But as soon as I just cleared him, get that double turn and cleared him from the rest of the board, it was like, all of a sudden I just jumped right ahead. I do like those missions like focal points where you can, I think it's kind of like the epitome of what I feel age of Sigmar mission design should be where you have the two, you have a catch up mechanic, but you also have a mechanic where if you do well enough in the beginning, you can just shut out your opponent. So if you're either early game or a late game army, because uh, a lot of the missions I feel like with uh, like better part of valor, they don't have catch up mechanics. You could either, you can mathematically win on turn two or three. Oh yeah. And, right. Like, so, or they um, have too big of catch up mechanics where it's like, you get so many points at the end being an early bird doesn't do anything. So I like those ones that are nice and balanced that it's like, you can just be oppressive and get super, do super well in the early game. And then you get table and you're like, well, I still win. doesn't matter. Um, or it's like the, the same mission you can have where you guys are kind of like playing, but one guy sneaks ahead and then the other guy just kind of eventually just slowly works you over and then wins by attrition it's like i just caught up in the end so i really i think focal points is one of those get missions that really hits the nail on the head with that mission design that i like yeah i have to agree with you on that it's it's nice and again it's like you said if the mission is is too off balance then you know it, it can be oh well okay this game is going to go one way but man i for me it's one of those things where i actually kind of like being on my back foot like if i'm put down early in the game but not completely out of it it's like that's what what allows my second brain to kick in you know the the forehead <laughs> starts sweating the juices start going but but that's when some of the most creative stuff happens too it's uh it's i kind of like that pressure 
and, and you have to have a mission that allows you that time to come back to, uh, as it were to build that head of steam oh yeah. yeah yeah like missions like duality of death i feel like with only two objectives you can get an early lead that just is impossible to catch up on especially the way the missions are scored or better part of valley where you're removing scorable points and the only way to score is by removing points the ability to even score from your opponent that you can just basically be like i have 11 points and you have one objective that is maximum worth eight points the game is over like i don't like those kinds of missions i feel like there needs to be enough objectives on the board that with smart play you can catch up but and not make it so that someone can just easily win too early but also not make it like uh, missions like uh, star strike where you get five points at the end and says so like if you do well in the beginning oh but then he gets 15 points for holding all three of them at the end so i i, I like those missions that have a nice balance rather than being one weighted one way or the other so did I did I follow it right that for this uh, GT did they roll each round off or did they just kind of keep them secret? Uh, how did that work? Because I certainly saw in the packet they weren't uh, announcing much. So uh, basically, what happened is morning of the tournament, one of their TOs just rolled every single mission with Realmscape feature, oh. and they they printed the packet day of. So okay, that makes we, sense. That, we, that explains what I was looking at then. Yeah, we got there Saturday morning. We're like. All right, we're ready to go. So, uh, is that the end of day one for you then? Or no, you had one more round, right? No, that that my my round three was versus the Hammer Hall opponent. My round two okay. was against uh, the Sylvaneth player. Got so, over how quick. about you tell us a little bit about how day two was in a nutshell, like a real quick nutshell. So day two for me was actually uh, interesting. So my round one opponent, I believe, was a very 40K-centric player. He, he had a lot of 40K thought processes, and he made a couple of mistakes that cost him the game. He did not notice that he could have stolen some objectives from me on Star Strike. And so I was able to squeak out a win on that one. And then my round five opponent, I it, it was a low model count Iron Jaws list that off of one good double turn, I just annihilated him. And it was... It was unfor- I mean, we both were just like, yep, that that's the game. Uh, James, on the other hand, I didn't actually see his game against Roger Barker. So he ended up pulling Roger for his round four. And uh, we had a lot of discussions about what he should do against the uh, Daughters of Cain. There was two Daughters of Cain. And then there was Roger, uh, the tournament winner, Caleb, with his Flesh Eater Courts, Gristlegore List, James, and Matt Obringer were the ones who were... Uh, undefeated going into day two. So he pulled Roger, which we had talked about a lot on how to beat his list because he, he had a very interesting bone split his list with double uh, rogue idols. And yeah, so he was able, but what he did with those bone split is just pump up one of the rogue idols to a two plus save with uh, sixes to hit causing three hits, double or triple its move with fly. So all sorts of things that he could send those rogue idols with all sorts of damage to just murder you very oppressive very night uh, interesting list um and initially we're like just kill the heroes it eliminates his ability to pump up the guys and then all you got to do is kill two rogue idols which isn't that hard but there's this big piece of terrain in the middle of the board that stopped that um so but james still was able to pull it off i'd be very interested to hear a lot more details on that uh game apparently it's a really good game his last game against matt was very interesting because it was better part of valor 
and it came down to the turn three priority roll. Uh, Matt made a gambit uh, to retreat Thankle out of combat with the uh, Caradron Overlord unit and was going to go for his backfield objectives. And if he got the double turn, he would have wasted all of James's backfield units and then burned every objective and gone for a win. James got the priority, though, and just burned the rest of his objectives, burned all but one of... uh, He was able to just blow Matt off of the objectives he needed to, burn all the objectives he had, and it was like, I have 11 points, you'll get maximum of 8 points, that will be game. So it was a very close game that came down to the priority role. Um, and yeah, uh, definitely was, it was, it was a very, very interesting game to watch. Well, I'm glad he did so well, straight up. I think that that is amazing. Um, any other kind of footnotes, final thoughts, things like that? Um, Du Bois was a fantastic event. We uh, ended up having 67 players at start time. Uh, and Gary put on a really great show uh, up in the frozen. It was cold as hell up there, but I do recommend going. It was a whole lot of fun. A uh, lot of really great awards. Gary likes to have some really intriguing awards. We had to put the number, every table had to total up the number of units that were destroyed. And then he um, would minus your, he basically had an award that was your total battle points minus the number of units that were totally killed on the table. So it was whoever scored the most points while having the least amount of stuff die. So he had, he had an award like that. And I thought that was really interesting. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds great. Um, yeah, you know, it's it seems like a really fun event. I hope every, a lot more people can start showing up to the Boys GT next year. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time tonight, so we won't be able to talk about the FAQs like we talked about at the beginning of this uh, episode, which is not a problem whatsoever. You guys will all be able to see it on the Warhammer community page anyways. That being said, this is going to be John and Garrett, as well as Alex, signing off for the night. Have a good night, folks. Good night, folks. Don't forget, Winter Wars, December 21st. Talk to you later. Winning is not a sometime thing. It's an all-the-time thing. You don't win once in a while, and you don't do things right once in a while. You do them right all the time. Winning is a habit.